we have been moving through uh, the Bible, trying to uh, discern the story, uh, the story of God, who He is, how He has revealed Himself, how we might understand Him, connect with Him, understand ourselves, our own calling, our own position, our own place in this world, in this life, in this existence. Uh, we started with God before creation, uh, self-sustained, uh, self-contained, uh, relational, the Trinitarian God who has always been, who will always be. And then we moved into creation itself to see the order, the, the provision, the, the uh, position of himself that uh, he would have no rivals, he would have no one... Uh, mentioned alongside him, and how we took that good creation and messed it up. And he stepped out in his wrath, in his judgment, to, uh, to see us corrected, to see us uh, reminded, if you will, of his place and his position in this world, in our lives. And then we saw his plan begin to come together in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and how he moved in their experiences in their life to express his desire for a commitment for a relationship with humanity. And we saw his plan begin to unfold even more as he rescued Israel from the enslavement that they found themselves in and, and the laws that he gave them there as he expressed his authority, his sovereign status over humanity. And then last week we looked at the covenant that he created with Israel, which reveals to us his, his nature, his personality, his desires. This week as we continue on, we, we come to the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And in these accounts, in these narratives, we find some of, perhaps, some of our fav favorite stories in the Bible. I would also argue we find some stories that are often misunderstood in terms of exactly what they are arguing, exactly what they are presenting. But nonetheless, we see in these stories one unfailing truth, and that is the faithfulness of God. The God we serve, the God who is revealing himself in his word, is faithful. Now, what does that mean? When, when, when we say somebody is faithful or something is faithful, what do, what do we mean by that? We, we mean, when we talk about faithfulness, we, we mean somebody who is consistent, somebody who's, who's true, somebody who, regardless of the situations or circumstances, is going to be the same. When I think of faithfulness, we all have those cultural things that we draw on for different ideas and concepts. When I think of faithfulness, one of my favorites is Horton Hatches the Egg by Dr. Seuss. All right, you all know this story? Horton has this friend who uh, doesn't really want to sit on an egg. Her name is Maisie. She doesn't really sit on her egg. She's, she's tired of sitting on her egg. She's tired of being there. 
And so she sees Horton there, and she says, Horton, will you sit on my egg? And Horton says, you bet. I'll do that because Horton's a giver, okay? Horton is a lover of people and so forth. And, and, and so he says, he says, I'll do it. She says, I won't be gone long. And he says, very well, um, since you insist and, and you want a vacation, I'll, I'll do it. And so she says to Lou and she leaves. And Horton finds a way. He, first of all, he supports the tree because an elephant's sitting in a tree. You've got to have support, right? And, and then as he's sitting there, says he sat and he sat and he sat and he sat. All right? He said all that day, and he kept on sitting, and you see the storms coming in, you see the cold, you see the wet. He says, I hope that she doesn't um, wait too much longer, but amazing, man, she's, she's what? She, <laughs> she's sitting on a beach. She's relaxing. She's loving life. She's loving these things. And I mean, the snow comes in, and the ice comes in, and Horton is still sitting there. And why is he sitting there? He says, he says I'll stay on this egg. And I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful. What? 100%. Yeah, y'all know the story. And so uh, people come by, they start ridiculing him, his friends and so forth, teasing him, all these other things. All this transpires. Hunters coming. He's threatened by hunters and, and them. In that situation, and he's like, nope. I'm going to move. I said what I said. I meant what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. That's faithfulness. And he sits there until the egg hatches. All right? Now, Maisie returns toward the end, and she's like, I, I want my egg back. And Horton's like, well, okay. I guess it's your egg. But when the egg hatches, what? It's an elephant bird, which obviously makes perfect sense. Well, what is that? It's a picture of faithfulness. It's a picture of somebody who said what they said. And they were going to be faithful to that, regardless of the outside circumstances, regardless of the hardship, regardless of the danger that they faced, regardless of how they're perceived, perhaps. And you see that play out in the story of Joshua and the judges and Ruth. You see God being faithful in a lot of ways, ways we're going to look at here in a moment. But that faithfulness plays out in the midst of misunderstandings about his nature and his character, misrepresentations of him by leaders, by individuals. You see that played out in the tension between the, 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 the resistance of the created and the resolve of the creator. God continues to confirm his role through the many stages of Israel's development. In Deuteronomy 31.6, you have a passage that echoes one that we read earlier in Scripture. This is God speaking to Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. What? He will never leave you 
nor forsake you. Why does faithfulness matter to us? Because it gives us a foundation from which to operate. It grants us a a, a reality from which to function in this world that is so crazy, so confusing, so inconsistent. We need something to hold on to. We need someone we can count on. We need a direction and a purpose and a plan for our lives to get us through the confusing messages we get from life, from fellow believers sometimes, certainly from non-believers. We need some clarity. And God provides that. So let's dig in. So let's dig in just a little bit more into these accounts to see what God's faithfulness looks like. And the the first thing we see about God is that He's faithful to His promise. The promise that He made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and to Moses, God is faithful to that. Now, uh, on one level, this is kind of self-apparent. The fact that we have an Israel, the fact that we have a Bible, the fact that we have Christianity, the church, it confirms God's faithfulness to His promise. The things that we encounter now, the things that we experience now, that, that we are able to enjoy and to understand about who He is, are all direct results of His faithfulness to His promise. What He said He would do, He has done. And we can revel in that. We can enjoy that. But we see that played out a little bit more here as we enter into the book of Joshua, the passage we read as our our scripture reading this morning in Joshua chapter 1 starts with what? Just as I was with Moses, I'm with you. The heart of that statement is what? It's God's faithfulness. When we read scripture, we read a lot of stories. A lot of narratives. Why? I've reflected before. When you look at other religion scriptures, most of them, almost all of them, are list of precepts. This is who God is, or you know, a list of this is who God is, or this is what God wants, or this is what God desires. You see that in in almost all those other religions, or sometimes wisdom for life, or you know, deep thoughts about reality or something like that. But when you come to the Bible, it's a story primarily. And the reason for that is because the story tells us who God is and how we can understand Him, relate with Him, walk with Him. When we face those those big moments of change and, and transformation and and circumstances that are beyond our control. We come to the book of Joshua, and we see him say to Joshua, what? 
Be strong and courageous. This morning as we read that passage, how many times did God utter that sentence? Be strong and courageous. And what was the basis of that be strong and courageous? What was the foundation of that that command, that, that charge, that encouragement? That God is with us. That God is faithful. Just as he saw Moses through things, he'll see Joshua through things. And just as he saw Joshua through things, he'll see us through things. He'll see us through circumstances. God is faithful to his promise in in spite of our fears. Put yourself for just a moment in the shoes of Joshua. Deuteronomy ends with the statement, No prophet has appeared in Israel like unto Moses unto this day. Now, we don't know exactly when that particular sentence of Deuteronomy was written, but we can assume it's sometime after the life of Joshua. It doesn't make sense if the very next person is, you know, an equal to Moses or whatever. So in other words, what you have is what? You have this this individual who's larger than life, who the people... Maybe didn't always obey or love, but they certainly respected. Especially after all they had seen him do, parting the Red Sea, standing on the mountain of God, talking to God in the clouds, throwing the Ten Commandments, destroying them, the earthquakes, the pheasants, the manna, Striking the rock and water coming out. Holding his arms. As long as his arms are up, Israel's winning the battle. Over and over and over again, you've seen Moses' great power. And now God says to Joshua, you're next up. Come on in. If you're Joshua at that moment, what are you thinking? I gotta think at least one of the things you're thinking is how on earth am I gonna do this? Will these people even listen to me? Yeah, I've been with them along the journey. I was one of the spies that went in and and you know I've been kind of Moses' right hand man along the way, but I'm not Moses. I'm not him. And God is telling me to lead Israel to to capture, to conquer this entire land. That's my job. It's no wonder that God continually responds with, be strong and courageous. But you today are are facing, if not the exact same thing, you all are facing things that are big mountains in your life. How do I pursue my degree? How do I restore this relationship that's broken? What do I do at a, at a job that's too big for me or 
perhaps in some cases too small for me. I'm afraid about the future. I watch the news and I see the threats of things happening in the Ukraine. While that's the Ukraine, I don't really know exactly how that influences me if that comes to play. How's that going to affect my life? Some of you are sitting at the threshold of great loss. How do I face tomorrow, given what I've experienced this week? I have that neighbor who I need to minister to, who I know God has led me to reach out to. How do I even begin that conversation? I have that sin that I've struggled with for years. Is there any hope for overcoming it? God would say to you exactly what he said to Joshua. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. I'll see you through this. Lean on me. Rely on me. And you'll see a future. You'll see opportunities and possibilities you couldn't have imagined were there before this moment, before this time. As you move into Judges, you you see a very different situation. Joshua and Judges really need to be read side by side. Joshua is <clears throat> Joshua is a story of, of what it looks like when the people of God are receptive and responsive to things God says. Yes, there are failures, the city of Ai and so forth, the relationship with Gibeon, things that they shouldn't have done, but by and large, it's a picture of when you're faithful to God, God's faithful to you. Despite your fears, despite your failures or your limitations, if you're faithful, God will see you through. But when you move into Judges, it's a totally different picture. Judges is really a picture of failure on Israel's part. You're hard-pressed to find after chapter 2 somebody who acts with integrity within the book of Judges. Chapter 2 starts off, you have Othniel, who's related to Caleb. He's faithful. He responds the way God would have him respond. The people respond the way they're supposed to respond to God. But moving out from him, you really have a disintegration of faithfulness on Israel's part, a disintegration of obedience on Israel's part, so that by the time you get to the book of Judges, you find the refrain three times. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody's just doing whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, however they want to do it. And so whereas Joshua deals with God's faithfulness to his promise in spite of our fears, Judges deals with God's faithfulness to his promise in spite of our failures. 
Because take just a moment just to consider the judges. You have Ehud, who was a deceitful, lying assassin. You have Deborah and Barak, who are participating in, in syncretism, that is, mixing of Canaanite religion with the worship of Yahweh, the true God. You have the faithlessness of both uh, Barak and Gideon, where God tells them exactly what he wants, and there's like, really, can, can I get just a little bit more confirmation on that? You have the idolatry that Gideon led Israel into. You have the selfishness of, of Jephthah. You have the lack of knowledge of God's character, Jephthah, and sacrificing his child. And Samson's parents not even recognizing who God is. And even though God has come and said, I'm giving you this child, I'm blessing you with this child, they named their child after a Canaanite god. And then he lives his life out, ignoring every promise he was supposed to make, supposed to keep as a Nazarite. Ultimately, not even, even delivering Israel from the foe that he was raised up to lead them away from, the Philistines. And then you get to those last couple stories in Judges, and those are just terrifying stories. I won't go into the details of them, but they are not stories that you would want to read at bedtime to your children. Let's put it that way. Israel was a faithless people during this time. And yet what? God was faithful. God was faithful. He delivered them over and over and over again from their oppressors. Even with Samson and his faithlessness, his breaking of every vow that he had made, God used that to what? To begin the deliverance of Israel from the Philistines. God preserved his people there. God protected his people there. God led his people there. His spirit came upon those leaders at, at key moments to, to bring victory, not because they brought the victory or because they were holy or they were righteous, but because he was faithful to his promise that the land would be theirs. Today, some of you are sitting here, or standing here, and you're well aware of your failures. You're well aware of those times where you knew to do right and you ignored it and went a different direction. Those times where you reveled in the rebellion. Perhaps even just this week. Or those times when you didn't love your neighbor as yourself. And you spoke words that were unkind or words that were untrue or gave off testimony of disobedience or rebellion against God. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, what can God do with me? A sinner 
who over and over and over again fails him. I want to tell you today, if you belong to Christ, God is faithful. He will never forsake you nor leave you. He's there. He's there, sometimes pulling you along, sometimes pushing you through. But he's there. He is faithful to his word. And though you may not feel it, and though you may doubt it, and you may question it, it is true nonetheless. Our God is faithful in spite of our failures. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if he's willing to make that commitment at the beginning, do you really think he's going to abandon that commitment later on in the relationship? He is committed to you. He'll be there with you. That's his promise. He's also faithful to his personality. His personality is something that we've already highlighted in terms of the relational nature of it that plays out in his judgment and in his grace. God is is faithful to his personality in judgment. We see that in the book of Joshua with, again, Israel takes Jericho. If you're not familiar with the story, let let me just remind you or fill you in. Jericho is the very first city that Israel comes to in the Promised Land. The very first one. It's a walled city. And Israel is not altogether that experienced in warfare. They've had some conflict with the kings of Moab and Edom on the other side. They've had some conflict with Amalekites out in the desert. Midianites out in the desert. But by and large, they're not really versed in warfare. They were slaves and then. They lived in the desert for 40 years. And so they come to their first battle. They come to the first city. And God says to Joshua, here, here are my instructions, Joshua. I want you to get the people, all the people, up in the morning, and I want you to, to march them around Jericho and then go home. I'm sure Joshua, who's had his scrapes, his his encounters and warfare is like that's a very interesting military tactic you got going there God and God says I want you to do that for six days get up everybody march around the city and go home then on the seventh day I want you all to march around seven times And then when the time is right, you march around that seventh time. I want you to blow the horns. I want the people to shout. For God has given Jericho into your hands. Sure enough, that seventh day, they're marching around. And again, you can imagine the people about the fifth or sixth time around. Really? We've been doing this all week. And now you're making us do it seven times today? I mean, I don't even have my marching boots on. 
Probably had to be some whining. There had to be some whining in the in the groups. Okay. Has Joshua lost his mind? And they get there that seventh time, they stop, the horns blow, the people shout, and the walls of Jericho fall. Then you have to imagine they're looking around at each other like, did that really just happen? Let's go. They march in. They take the city. A great moment of God's faithfulness because the people didn't make the walls fall. God made the walls fall. And they win that great victory over that very first city there. God has been faithful, but there's one individual among Israel who ignored God's instructions because God's instructions were don't take any of the loot, don't take any of the gold, don't take any of the wealth from this city. It doesn't belong to you. I've won the victory. It belongs to me. It goes to the tabernacle fund. It goes to the priesthood. This isn't for your enrichment. This is for my glory. Achan ignored that and took some. says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. One guy stole some stuff, and it says what? Israel, the people of Israel broke faith, not just one person. And God's anger is not just against this one individual, it's against all of Israel. And why is that? That doesn't seem fair. You have a lot of people here, and one man disobeys God, and they're all going to pay for it. This grows out of God's relational mentality. This grows out of his seeing the individual as part of the whole and the whole as connected to the individual. And right here, it doesn't seem fair. And right here, it seems kind of out of whack. But this is essential to why Jesus' death on the cross affects you and me. How does one man's death by my salvation, some 2,000 years later, how does that one man affect billions of people? Because God sees the one through the whole and the whole through the one. This is part of his relational mindset. It plays out in his judgment here, but plays out in his grace through Christ. In the book of Judges, you see Israel's failure played out there with God saying, I'm going to keep the Canaanites around. That's his judgment. But we also see his grace. Going back to Jericho, 
Part of the command of God there at Jericho was that every living person, every person living there, had to be put to death. Lest they corrupt Israel as a reflection upon their sinfulness. Back in Genesis 15, when God promised the land to Abram, he said to Abram, this is your land, but you cannot have it yet because the sin of the Amorite is not yet full. In other words, they, there's still time for them. There's still, there's still a, a flicker of hope in these people's lives, in these people's situations. Judgment is not yet going to be carried out fully against the people of Canaan. 400 years later, with Joshua, the people had reached the point of no return. They'd reached the point where there was no response to God and His goodness and His position and His place in their life. And so all that was left was judgment. That, that's all that could be done for the people at this point because they had rejected God. And so the command was to wipe out everybody in the city. But you have in chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, an account of this, the taking. It says, Shout, for the Lord has given, the, given you the city, and the city and all that is within it, that's all the people, devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live. Now, who's Rahab? Rahab is, as the text says, a prostitute. She was somebody who hid the spies, when they came to, to see what was up with Jericho and, and what they would be facing in trying to take this city. And she had hid them, she had protected them, and she had declared to them, I know that your God, Yahweh, is the true God. When, they, when she first meets the spies, she says that. She says, I know what your God has done in Egypt and in between here and there. I know the story, and I know he's the true God. So I want to be my God too. And so when Israel took Jericho and they were supposed to wipe everybody out, Rahab and her family were preserved. That's God's grace. That's God saying, even though as a whole you've reached this point of no return where judgment's all that's left, when grace can make the difference, I'm going to let it. Judgment stand aside. Mercy's coming through right now. And what's so amazing to me about the, about the story and about Rahab in particular is not just that God delivered her and rescued her and allowed her to live, but according to Matthew 1.5, she is an ancestor to Jesus himself. Think about that. She is this Canaanite woman who's separated from God, who doesn't see God, doesn't understand God, but God rescues her, delivers her from this moment, and not only does he just let her live, he lets her become an ancestor to the Messiah. God's grace, his personality is such that, that that's still the case. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you what you've done or or where you've been, or what sin you've committed. His grace is sufficient to transform you, and not just to, quote, deliver you from hell, which he does, but to make you a 
king and a queen in his kingdom. One of my favorite songs is a song by an artist named Mark Lowry. You probably know him from his humor. Uh, quite a funny guy. He also wrote Mary, Did You Know? But my favorite song by him is um, I, don't, I Don't Know What a Sinner You Are. And it's a song about basically saying, I don't know what kind of sinner you are. I don't know how big a sinner you are. I don't know all the things you've done. I don't know all the places you've gone. I don't know all the things you've done. But I know what a Savior He is. And so I know He's able to deliver you wherever you've been. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you've done in your rebellion, His salvation is available. That's his personality. He is merciful and gracious. And all this comes together to help us to see that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his people in the growth that he brings. Just real quickly, again, we're a little bit long here for where I like to be, but just real quickly, in the book of Joshua, Joshua 1, verse 1, it starts with the description there. It says, After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, or the servant of Yahweh, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. In verse 1, Moses is the servant of Yahweh, Joshua is the servant of Moses. And as you go through the entire book of Joshua, not once, not once is Joshua declared, to be a servant of Yahweh. My, he doesn't call him my servant. He doesn't call him my, my chosen. He doesn't call him anything special or anything like that until verse 29 of chapter 24. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died. The very first verse, he's the servant of Moses. The very one of Last verses, he's the servant of Yahweh. God took him on a journey of growth. God took him on a journey of discovery. God, God took him to a place that God wanted him to be. As Joshua experienced that encounter uh, with the, the commander of the armies of the Lord before Jericho and went through Jericho and went through Gibeon and his failures there and, and, and saw the earth stand still so that the battle could be completed and then won the great battle against Hotsor, the, the king of all those nations and all those other things, he discovered who God is more and more so that it wasn't just a knowledge that he had gained as the servant of Moses. It was now a personal relationship with God to where he's a servant of Yahweh. That's a journey we all need to go to. We also see God's faithfulness to his people and the patience he shows. The amount of time involved in, in all of this. The period of the judges, the experiences of Joshua. As we started this, this journey with, with Abram, we're, we're 500, 600 years into the relationship now. 
Israel's still messing up. God's still faithful. He's patient with us. He's patient with you. And he is faithful to his people in the transformation he performs. The story of Ruth falls in the, in the, the context of the book of Judges. It's a story of a, of a Moabite woman who marries an Israelite man, and the Israelite man dies. And this woman, Ruth, is connected to her mother-in-law, who is an Israelite named Naomi. Now, one of the things you need to understand is, again, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moabites are said to never be able to participate in the assembly because of their past, because of their history, because of their rejection of God, they're on the outside looking in in many respects. It doesn't mean they were without hope of salvation. It just means they were not able to do certain things, to, to be a part of certain realities within Israel. And so Ruth, being a Moabite, is, is one of those. But very early on in the story of Ruth, we get a narrative, we get a, a hint that things have changed. As Naomi's heading back to Israel, Ruth wants to go with her, and she says in verse 17 of chapter 1, Where you die, I will die. Oh, excuse me, a little bit before that. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my people. And where you die, I will die. And then notice what it says at the end of chapter 1. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. My translation kind of glosses this over, but in the Hebrew and in, your, in a more literal word-for-word translation, it says, Ruth returned to Bethlehem. It separates Ruth from Naomi and says, Ruth returned to Bethlehem, which is interesting because as far as we can tell, Ruth's never been to Bethlehem. She's certainly not from Bethlehem. But the text pulls her out, explicitly says she returned to Bethlehem, which is what? It's the narrator saying Ruth is now home. Though she was a Moabite before, though she was on the outside before, she's come home to a place she's never been before. Her profession of faith has changed her status. And at the end of the book of Ruth, you find out what? That Ruth, too, just like Rahab, is an ancestor of the Messiah. This Moabite who was supposed to be on the outside looking in has become the ultimate insider. God transforms our lives. He wants to transform your life. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, God desires to see you enter into a relationship with him the way you were created to have a relationship with him. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he invites you to that relationship. In a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. That's your opportunity to to express your desire to to have that relationship. Some of you here are are in that relationship. You're in that commitment, but you've been drained. You've been strained. You've been pulled down by your sins, by your decisions. I want to encourage you to know that God hasn't moved. He's faithful to you right where you're at. If you need to 
to express a, a word of recommitment, a, a word of renewal to his faithfulness to you, it's your opportunity as well. Maybe you're here and you need to surrender to ministry or to, to some other work that God's laid on your heart or, or connect with our church through baptism or, or through switching membership or whatever it is. This is your opportunity to respond to what God perhaps has laid on your heart this morning as we've gone through this work. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on up. And I'm going to ask you all to, to stand. And we're going to bow for a word of prayer. And as we pray, if there's something God's laid on your heart, just be responsive to that, what he would have you do, who, how he would have you respond. And then as we sing here in just a moment, I want to invite you to make that decision public. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here, for your work, for your commitment to us, your faithfulness to us, so far beyond anything we deserve or could possibly ever even think about earning, God. You are so gracious to us to give us what we don't deserve, to give us of yourself, to transform our hearts and our minds. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you, that you would draw them to that decision here this morning. They would simply respond in faith, giving their life to you. God, I pray for others who have other decisions to make, Lord, that you would lead them to that, whether it's right where they're at, standing at their pew, or up here publicly with the rest of us, so that we can pray for them and encourage them as well. Lord, use this time for your glory for your purposes. In Christ's name I pray.